I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 17 this morning. As we transition out of Revelation, this is going to be a bit of an abrupt transition from Revelation to um, our Advent series, Advent Now But Not Yet. But I think it's a, it's an, a time for us to, to point to the, the reality that Jesus appeared 2,000 years ago, but he will appear again to usher us into this new heavens and new earth, and that's what we anticipate. We continue to look forward to that day. And just as the Old Testament saints waited for Jesus's first coming, we anticipate a second coming. And so Christ's birth marked the beginning of fulfillment that will culminate upon his return. And so there is joy and tension in that waiting. We all know what waiting feels like. Most of us probably don't enjoy it, (laughs) unless you're waiting for something that you don't look forward to going through. Then you're kind of, okay, well, I'll wait longer. I'll wait a bit longer, or I'll put that off. But typically, waiting is something we, we can't stand. And I think there's that aspect here in, in Advent of, of there being both hopes and fears. Right? There's, there's, Christmas is a, a time of celebration, as well as, for many, it's a time of unwanted pressure. Uh, there's a variety of highs and lows that all of us encounter during the holiday season. For many of us, Thanksgiving is a wonderful time of fellowship around an incredible meal. We spend all day building up to it, but, but for others, that time is filled with social anxieties and family tensions, and we fear that by gathering around the table, we're only going to exacerbate those tensions. We're only going to exaggerate them. And so we actually enter into Thanksgiving with trepidation. So every generation experiences these kinds of hopes and fears. And as we enter into the Advent season, we want to reflect upon the hopes and fears of all the years. It's a line from Philip Brooks' hymn that we'll sing at the close, or after this, after this uh, sermon, O Little Town of Bethlehem. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. So the hopes and fears of all the years were met in Bethlehem, the night of the Savior's birth. And that phrase, I think, nicely sums up the opening genealogy of the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, It relates to our own hopes and fears as well. Well, Matthew was one of the first disciples that Jesus called. He called him out of his profession as a tax collector, according to chapter 9, verse 9. He was a Jew who wrote his account for fellow Jews, probably somewhere late in the 60s, possibly the 50s, um, but, but it seems likelier in the 60s. Um, and it would have been prior to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And that's important because the genealogy that he provides here could have been verified by the records that were kept in the temple. You know, there's, there's record of, of the priestly line being recorded in the temple and royal lines that are important, these important lines. And so if, if Jesus is claiming to be the son of David, they could verify that. 
It, and and instead they they go a different direction in in uh, arguing against um, uh, Christ as the Messiah, right? They they focus on the fact that he was uh, an illegitimate son. He was born out of wedlock. That becomes the critique. So, anyways, he he. This is an important um, time to to be writing. And Matthew assumes a knowledge as he's um, recording his book. He assumes a knowledge of the Old Testament. He continually informs the reader how Jesus fulfills the messianic promises. In fact, in the first two chapters alone, there are five quotes from the Old Testament of the Old Testament promises that have been fulfilled in Christ's birth. And he attempts then to convince his audience that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ. So the opening prologue here, chapters 1 through 2, divides into six parts, and that's what we'll be looking at this over the next few weeks. This Advent series is is chapters 1 and 2. But it's divided into six parts, including, of course, Jesus' miraculous birth, as well as episodes of conflict and suffering. And several of these accounts are exclusively found in Matthew. He's the only one who records the dream that Joseph has and at the end of this chapter in verses 20 through 24. Uh, he's the only one that records the journey of the Magi in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. The only one who records the flight into Egypt in chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And he's also the only one who records Herod's slaughter of boys to an under in Bethlehem and the surrounding region. All of these accounts are filled with tension, right? There's hopes and fears throughout these first two chapters. But maybe the most mundane thing that he records is the opening, when he should be giving us a hook that arrests our attention and brings us into the story of the birth of Christ. He starts with a list of names. Could there be any more uninteresting way to begin a book? And in our modern thinking this is this is like an appendix at best right we 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 think this is this is boring let's let's get past it to the exciting passages right there's plenty of excitement to come but why even touch this genealogy and so for many of you i imagine if if not all of you you've probably never even heard a sermon on this passage genealogies are just they they're not popular in the pulpit. But of course, that wasn't the case for the Jewish audience. They had a keen interest in lineage, in family trees. They especially had an interest in the lineage of the Messiah. And so the opening words of this section, the, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, that phrase, the book of the genealogy, relates to a phrase that's found twice in the book of Genesis, in the Greek version called the Septuagint of Genesis. Uh, it, it's referring to the origins or the beginnings. And so right from the start, Matthew makes it clear that this is the beginning of a new era in covenant history. He also reveals uh, his purpose by referring to the title Christ. The genealogy of Jesus Christ. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Messiah. And and it's there in verse 1. He also repeats that in verse 16 and 17. He'll refer to it throughout his book. It means the anointed one. And he's saying right from the start, this is the Messiah. This is the genealogy, the origins 
of the Messiah. And so the rest of his book is an attempt to prove that Jesus is indeed the Christ. So let us ask the Lord for his help before we read this passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, even this genealogy that has so much to teach us. And your, your word is sharp and powerful. Every, every letter in it, every jot and tittle. And that is no less true of this passage. But in our, our modern minds, we, we, ref- we think, what is, what is the importance of this? And yet, Lord, as we'll, we'll see here, there's so much value to be considered in this opening section of Matthew. But I pray that you would help us to be attentive, cause us to have eyes to see and ears to hear the truth. Lord, soften our hearts by your Spirit. And open your word to us as you open us to your word, that we would be changed, that we would be transformed, and that we would give you the glory that you you are due to receive. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Read with me Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, I'd summarize this section here. If you're following along in your outline, you'll see it there at the top, as the arrival of Jesus Christ marked the culmination 
of centuries of hopes and fears. Matthew shows this in a a very Jewish way uh, by recording the Messiah's heritage. And so we begin this first section with an important heritage. You're probably familiar that Luke also has a genealogy in Luke chapter 3, a genealogy of Jesus. And whereas Matthew works from Abraham to Jesus, Luke begins with Jesus and then traces 77 generations all the way back to Adam. Now, Matthew could have, worked, could have started with Adam. He had the same access to the geneolo- genealogical records that are recorded in the early chapters of Genesis. He could have put that together with Chronicles and, and made the same line uh, that, that Luke did. Uh, he, he, however, he, sorry, even if you remove the names from Adam to Abraham, Luke still has many more names, 15 or 16 more names than Matthew has in his record. So how do we understand that? Right, Matthew is, is being deliberately selective. He is more interested, and this is not untypical, this is not atypical, it's, it's common uh, for genealogical records in, in Scripture to, to be selective. Um, he's more interested in highlighting certain characters and showing a pattern than providing a precise family tree. Uh, each section contains characters that would be worth exploring further, the ones that we know something about, of course. Um, but the names that are most prominent in this genealogy are Abraham, David, and Jesus. And he mentions each one of them in the first verse there. So God promised to make Abraham into a great nation, and he would have an important name because God would bless him, and through Abraham, all peoples of the earth would be blessed. It's a promise given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 through 3, and Matthew opens with this reminder in his emphasis upon Abraham. He's recognizing that these promises given to Abraham are now finding their fulfillment in Christ. And he closes with Jesus' commission to make disciples of all nations. He, he opens and closes with this theme that, that the hope of the gospel is for the nations. So the promise given to Abraham connects this particular genealogy of Jesus Christ to every nation. But anyone who, who hopes to receive the blessing that was given or that was promised through Abraham, must come through Jesus Christ. That's Matthew's point. He begins by acknowledging the humanity of Jesus. He was born into the family of man. The fact that Jesus has a family tree indicates that he was rooted in humanity. He had had human parents and grandparents and great-grandparents. Jesus had a, a family just like everyone else. Of course, he was unique as the God-man, and we'll get to that next week as we focus on his divine origins, which will be very clearly also part of the purpose of Matthew. But here in the beginning, his emphasis is upon his humanity. And so I want us to, to camp out there in this message. And Jesus had a family like everyone else. He had some well-known figures. If you go back far enough, you too can trace your steps back to a to an important figure in history, probably. Um, but he had several names in his record that we know nothing about. 
And so Jesus clearly had a Jewish nationality, which means that we need to understand something of the Old Testament in order to grasp the significance of his birth. And reading Luke chapter 24, we see the importance of reading the Old Testament through the lens of Christ, right? recognizing our need for Jesus even to understand the Old Testament. So all of these generations find their purpose and meaning in Christ, the one who would come after them. So Jesus marks the division of history, right? whether you call it the year of our Lord, Ado Domini, right, A.D., or whether you call it the common era, what is it that marks the beginning of that era? What is it that marks the beginning of that age? It's the birth of Christ. And Jesus also bridges the two histories of God's covenant with man. He marks the center of history as well as the center of Scripture. And so the, the first question you, you need to wrestle with this Advent season is, is whether or not you know this man, whether or not you know Jesus. And the only way to get to know him is in the way that he's revealed himself, which is through his word. Take time to study the person and work of Jesus in all of Scripture this Advent season. I'd study it on your own. Study it corporately. Study it with your family as you gather together, even the extended family who, who may not ever open their Bibles. Take the time to point them to Jesus Christ. Right, the reason why we celebrate. Consider how you might do that this month and to understand more about the one who took on flesh to ransom us. And so although Jesus was born into a truly human family, it was nonetheless an impressive heritage. And that's the second section I want us to look at is, is an impressive heritage. From Abraham to David, the two records in Matthew and Luke are essentially identical, but after David, the, the names are entirely different. And one proposal is that Luke actually presents the genealogy of Mary, while Matthew provides the genealogy of Joseph. The main problem I find with that solution is that Luke doesn't state this. In fact, he, he begins tracing it the same way that um, Matthew does through Joseph explicitly. So the better option, in my opinion, is that Luke's account follows Jesus' natural descent while Matthew follows his royal descent. And the words translated father of do not necessarily mean the immediate father of. It can mean ancestor of in the same way that we call him the son of David, even though he is not David's immediate son. And so dear, um, the, the, the view of, or this view dates all the way back to Eusebius, who was actually referring to Africanus before him. So it dates back to the third century and was adopted by Calvin and many modern scholars, including D.A. Carson, take this view. So Matthew is intent here on proving that Jesus is the true heir of the Davidic throne, and that's his purpose here. He's following a pattern here of the royal lineage of Jesus Christ to emphasize the fact that he is, in fact, heir to David's throne. He was legally, right? He, he legally had a right uh, to the throne. He had a royal heritage. He not only came from the tribe of Judah, who was always promised to have the scepter, 
in Genesis 49, verse 10, but he was in the line of King David, the king who had been promised to have a perpetual throne. Psalm 89 teaches us that. And so during his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the crowd shouted the messianic title, Son of David. And they're, they're crying out to him in praise and, and, and adoration as the Son of David. In fact, many of those who were asking to be healed in Jesus' ministry call him the Son of David, recognizing his power and his sovereign authority. And so in, in, in a previous time, this family, Joseph and Mary, they, they might have been uh, prince and princess. But as God planned it, they, are, they were insignificant in human status. Despite his prestigious heritage, Jesus was born to a poor family that could only afford to offer a pair of turtle doves when he was presented in the temple in Luke chapter 2. So there was nothing special about Joseph and Mary other than that they fulfilled the prophetic promises. And Matthew wants to convince his audience that Jesus was indeed the long-expected Messiah. And so Jesus satisfies the hopes of an impressive heritage, but he does so not in a way that we would expect him to. And Michael Green summarizes this well. He says, just as David represented the high watermark of Israel's hopes and development and pointed forward to his descendant Jesus... So the Babylonian captivity represents the nadir of Israel's fortunes and frustration of her hopes and the end of the royal line. And it too points forward to Jesus the Messiah. So you have both the hopes and fears of the nation resting upon Christ, the Messiah, and his people in whom those fortunes will be restored and those promises fulfilled. So the hopes and fears of all the years were met in Bethlehem the night Jesus Christ was born. And very few recognized it at the time because the king of kings was born into the lowest of conditions. Expectations of outward pomp and circumstance, of overthrowing the the earthly throne of, of Rome, instead were met with humility and simplicity and sacrifice. Hope faded into disdain when Jesus didn't fit their presuppositions about how he should act. And I think even that oftentimes is the case today. Right? Jesus said there, would, there was only one way to the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And people have a hard time with that concept, that exclusive Uh, claim that Christ makes. And you cannot fashion a Jesus to your own liking. You must know him as he has revealed himself to us. And so if Jesus is going to be your Lord, then you must be capable of correcting, or he must be capable of correcting your false notions of him. And Jesus was the anointed one, but he humbled himself to the point of death, as Philippians 2 teaches us in order that all might come to him by faith. That it doesn't matter what status you are. Everyone has access to this reward and inheritance by faith alone in Christ alone. 
And so we must all submit to him as Lord. And that means turning away from the things that we used to live for and finding our hope in him. Finding him as the answer to our fears. And so even though it was an impressive heritage, it was also an improbable heritage. And like, like Luke, Matthew's pattern is to only mention the fathers in the family tree. That's the pattern, even in this genealogy, to mention the fathers. However, he breaks from that pattern on five occasions. To also mention the mother. He mentions Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, the wife of Uriah, and Mary. And this was rare. It's not unheard of in the Old Testament genealogies for women to be mentioned, but it's quite rare. And so it would have been unexpected. Beyond that, he doesn't mention the wives you would expect. He doesn't mention the wives of the patriarchs, the wives who are honored for their faith. He mentions these particular women, all of which have some questions of, well, most of them at least have some questions of morality and and possibly all of them were outside of God's covenant people when they were born. Right? They're, they're, they're coming in as foreigners. We know that's definitely true of, of uh, Rahab, who was from Jericho. It's possibly true of Tamar. Many think she was a Canaanite. Uh, Ruth, we know, was a Moabite. And it emphasizes these things in those passages, right? that they're, they're foreign status. Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So some say she may have been a Hittite herself, but even if she was a daughter, uh, an Israelite, her marriage to a Hittite would have made her and, you know, would have placed her on the fringe. People would have, would, would have not um, uh, recognized her in the same way that they recognized the other uh, women in Israel. And so when Judah's wife died, he, he slept with one that he thought was a prostitute but wound up being his daughter-in-law. That's Tamar. That's, that's the one that, that Matthew makes sure he mentions in the genealogy. And he mentions the one who seduced her father-in-law into a relationship to provide sons. Rahab was from Jericho, and she's this heroic figure for hiding the two Hebrew spies from Joshua. Right, that Joshua had sent these two spies into Jericho before they came to attack, and she heroically hides them. But many forget that she was a prostitute when they entered her home, according to Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. Ruth was a Moabite, one of Israel's greatest enemies, and as a Moabite, she was cursed from entering the assembly of the Lord, according to Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 through 5. And Bathsheba is not mentioned by name, but as the wife of Uriah, she's the one who sparked David's descent into this compounding sin, right, of adultery and then later murder of her husband Uriah. And again, as I mentioned, she may have been a, a Hittite herself. So all of these were, were Gentiles who came to believe, or possibly Gentiles, who came to believe in the God of Israel and were brought into the covenant community. Every one of them pointed forward to the child who would be worthy 
to receive praise from every nation. Right, it's the same theme that we got w- from mentioning and focusing upon Abraham, the blessing to the nations. And so we come to this Mary at the end of the genealogy, who is a virgin who gave birth to the seed who would crush the head of the serpent. And although she's not an outsider to the covenant community, her out-of-wedlock pregnancy gave her a reputation that fits the lives of the previous women that are mentioned in the genealogy. And so Jesus was born into a family of sinners. Right? But, but he was never tainted by sin. The virgin birth is essential to the sinlessness of Christ, and we'll see that more clearly next week. But all of these women were sinners rescued by God's redeeming grace. And like everyone else on the list, they highlight the fallen world's need of a Savior. And Matthew selects these particular women in order to shine the light upon God's grace so that we might recognize that where sins are many, His mercy is more. And so we have a Savior who entered into a royal line of humanity. He comes to meet us where we are in humility. So that even though he comes from a royal line, he enters into a human family that is poor and has no status. And so love came down to the lowest of lows in order to save us from the least to the greatest. There is no exception. And the hopes and fears of all the years, including our own, are met in Christ alone. And so the question for you is, do you know him? Do you worship him? Do you submit to him as your Lord and Savior? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reflection, even in a a passage that's just a list of names. Lord, we can see the importance and the centrality of the gospel. But even in the way Matthew lays out these names with the, the particular women that he mentions as part of Jesus' heritage, that he comes into a family of sinners. He takes on flesh. He enters in, in, in the lowest of estates, the lowest of circumstances, born in a manger in order to save people from every status. Lord, and we've seen that throughout history. We've seen the hearts of kings turned to Christ, the King of kings. We've seen the hearts of of those with nothing who turn to him and find everything and find everlasting joy and satisfaction. Lord, may our hearts be turned to him this season. May we look to your word. May we consider Christ in all of scriptures. May he be central in every worship service, Lord, here in the church. May he be central in our homes as we gather together. Lord, there's certainly things to enjoy and appreciate about the traditions of Christmas. Lord, but may they not be a distraction from the one who came to ransom us. Lord, may we give him all of the praise and glory that he alone is worthy to receive even now as we respond and sing it's in christ's name we pray
Amen.